0: We have our first sponsor. If you guys have been watching our Instagram account, you've probably seen it. One of the coolest things that Precision Camera offers is what's called a virtual showroom. What you can do is log into their website at precision-camera.com. And right on the first page there, you'll see a link to the virtual showroom. You can go in there and schedule an appointment. And what you'll do is a video conference with a salesperson on the floor. And these people deal with all levels, all camera brands, all the time, and you're going to be able to tell them your level of experience or the person that you're buying for, and you'll be able to tell them your budget. And based off of that, you'll be able to narrow in on what is the best camera for what you have going on. If you don't have time for a video chat, there is also a text chat option. If you have a quick question about a product, you can type in your question and somebody will get back to you very quickly. If you decide to do that and you decide to buy a camera, we got a good deal for you. With their sponsorship of the show, they've also given us a coupon code. If you go in, set up your account, create your purchase, get to the checkout screen, you'll get a little field on the checkout sheet that asks for a coupon code. And what you want to put in is wild and exposed. And what that gets you is $50 off of a 500 or more dollar purchase. We're super excited to have Precision Camera as a sponsor. Now, I'm with the show. Welcome
1: to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in.
2: Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We got the full crew here today. Mark Raycroft up in Canada, Canada. He hates it when I say Canada.
1: <laughs> Makes it sound even bigger. That I, I, I could be okay. <laughs> Just coast to coast, Atlantic, Pacific, Arctic.
2: Yeah. Love it. Got it all.
1: I love all planet Earth, though. Don't get me pitch and hold here, but yeah. No complaints.
2: Jason Loft is coming to us from Utah. How's it going, Jason?
3: Very good. Hey, guys. How you guys doing? Sweet brother, good to see you.
2: uh, We've got Michael Morrow coming to us from Colorado this week. This is maybe one of the last times that we're all on where we're not even more spread out than we are now. Um, As once spring hits, we'll all be kind of running different directions and, and trying to develop some new content. Get out, find the critters that we like to pursue in the spring. Mark will be doing a little bit of break dancing So that that wasn't bad actually So before we get into this week's topics of conversation I got a couple bones to pick (laughs) About the last catch up that you guys did And I was working so I wasn't able to be on Number one, I appreciate you guys including me in parts of the conversation But there was a big point in the conversation where ron was left completely out <laughs> we started planning this cross country trip in my sprinter van new sprinter van and no mention of ron at all mark you can do this jason you can meet us up here and ron i guess is just holding down the fort so i'll be hanging out with everybody else who's not doing anything <laughs> we figured he'd be hanging out with the grouse well, I probably will be for a while, but you don't be leaving me out of the sprinter van con- conversation. And I think that is where the other topic kind of was skirted around because, you know, Mark. So today's was,
1: podcast <laughs> is about listener questions.
2: <laughs> Mark was staking out his claim to the, to the front seats. And so we wouldn't have to pull beds together or something in the, in the cabin. Right a little bit of separation so you can put some boards on the front seat of the Sprinter van.
1: Well, if I, if I remember correctly, I think I joked that Michael would just throw me a pup tent out the door, <laughs> and then he yeah. said, oh, you could yeah. and then sleep in the front and put a board across." Yeah. Okay. Well, it'd be it could be a big board, buddy. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not sure where you're going with
2: this.
3: <laughs> listen, Ron. Listen, Mike's
2: right already there. got.
3: Mike's already got the rooftop tent rooftop tent ordered for us, so we're good. Yeah,
2: oh, it's going to be on top of the solar panels.
3: Oh, yeah. there's room. There's room.
2: Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm good with it. Um, I'm not I'm afraid, afraid of heights, have... but I was a little bitter about the whole getting left out of the road trip. <laughs> <part>. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: Oh, we do funny. have, where we were we going some, on that trip? I don't even, we just recorded that podcast. I don't even remember we got, where we were going to go, go, go cross
2: country to oh, go all over navigate the continent.
1: Yeah. yeah. Ron was just staying home though. <laughs> round and round the world we go guys.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so hey, yeah. re- re- real quick too, before we get into it, Ron, like just to address some issues from the last podcast too. <laughs> Uh, one of the, one of the questions or the one of the things we talked about was when would we use a filter, right? An ND filter for photography, mm-hmm. and we mentioned the silky water. But I actually thought of another perfect example of where you might want to do it, and it would be if you're trying to be maybe a little bit more artistic, maybe you're trying to get some motion blur on a critter that's running or something. Um, that would be another example of where you'd want to potentially use an ND filter to slow Late, slow your shutter down.
2: Day other than just yeah.
3: Or yeah, because you're
2: you're
3: yeah yeah, exactly. You'd be real limited early in the morning to do it, and if you wanted to try to you know push that and do it a little bit later, you could use an ND filter to accomplish that. So just something I thought about, and it was I thought it was pertinent. So
2: yeah, and as I was listening to you guys' conversation about that, the other I mean it's another landscape application, but for clouds as well. So if you have clouds that are moving really fast. Um, you can use an ND filter and just let those clouds run. You can take, you know, that two, three minute exposure that you were talking about with the waterfalls and you get a nice effect with the clouds as well as, you know, as long as the motion is consistent, they kind of get nice and strung out and and look kind of silky, almost like the waterfall does. So that's another application, but those are, those are both landscape. And I agree, Jason, the, the uh, motion blur pan blur with the filter on. By the way, I'm going to look this up, but the rotate at the hips comment that you guys made fun of.
0: This was not this the last podcast. This is way, this, way back. This is a
2: while back when we were talking about motion blur and I said, you just got to rotate at the hips. Ron, right? are you having a bad day, but <laughs> no, It's not a bad day at all. Actually, this was a good day. Oh, one <laughs> well, i somebody... Somebody took that took that tip and gave it a shot and worked out for them. And I'm trying to find the name.
0: Oh, they were standby. rotating at the hip. Did they shoot they, video of themselves
2: rotating them. at the hip? No, they did not, unfortunately. But they should have. I Why
0: don't you them guys go into Yellowstone here sometime soon? Why don't you guys try a rotate yep. at the hip uh, pro tip video?
3: There you go. I'll, I'll video it
2: you're gonna video if you video i'll do it
3: okay (laughs) done
2: (laughs) all right we'll give you guys a demo
3: only if you have walking sticks though yep
2: Ooh,
0: and you got to be on the side of a hill yeah a bunch of inside jokes i did
2: not say anything about the stance i just said rotate at the hip.
0: Well, that stance is your natural, <laughs> natural stance anyway, so I think it, it would shine through. Yeah.
2: Unfortunately, the more I see myself, it's the more I realize stance. you are correct. It's, it's, it's definitely my relaxed, we'll call it my relaxed stance. How's that? Does that work? <laughs> the relaxed pose.
1: <laughs> I was in a happy place on a great day. Right. Great frame of mind. It
2: was the zen.
1: You just <laughs> let it all go.
2: It was the Zen moment. That's for sure. All right. So let's get
0: into some listener questions. No, hold on. I think we want to talk about two other things, right? You guys sent me a, somebody sent me a text earlier about the
2: National Park Service. I did. And that was, that was uh, forwarded to me from Adam Rice. Yeah. He sent it to me earlier too. Adam. Yeah, Adam does the tours in the national park, so it was really big news for him. So up until, until this point, the National Park Service had a permit requirement if, if you were going to film commercially in Yellowstone National, or in, in any of the national parks. You had to buy get a commercial filming permit, and a judge just handed down a ruling. We still don't know much about this, don't know what the impact is going to be that you did not need a permit to film commercially. Now there have been, you know, it's it's been up till this point, it's been kind of open to interpretation. They, some enforce it very tightly. If you're going to gain any or have any monetary gain, then it's considered commercial. Some, and the way that it's written actually states that it's for large film crews uh, that need the permit but an individual wouldn't necessarily but it's interpreted differently by different rangers so this judge's ruling however says that you do not need a permit to film commercially in Yellowstone National Park or in sorry not Yellowstone in the na- national parks in the US so it's good news for photographers the you know the negative that i can see is you know you get a win and then all of a sudden you get regulations that kind of clamp down into other areas. So we still need to be respectful, need to be careful, you know, when we're out there in the national parks. However, this is this is good news, I think, for those of us that are out and, and trying to do some of these things. Mark, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say that uh, I think we should put a link to this article in our show notes at wildandexposed.com, and, and anybody who's interested in following up and doing their own research can pick it up from there.
0: Yeah, and in the article too, they said that the Park Service was still trying to figure out how they were going to respond. You know, because that could be something that they could send up to the next court, appeal it if they wanted to. I would say
2: definitely be appealed. Yeah,
0: but I also think, like you said, Ron, I think it is up to interpretation with all the different parks, and I certainly don't mind paying a little bit if I'm going to be out there. It's just a little barrier to entry if you do that, and it's never been that much money to to buy a permit it's more just the pain in the butt of doing it you know the process yeah the process of actually doing it so i and i think they'll still treat huge film crews with some sort of permit type system but that's where you got catering trucks showing up and all these different things where they have the potential of ruining some of the ecosystem But the little onesie-twosie stuff that we do, or if you're out there doing YouTube, and then you're making money off of YouTube, I mean, that would be kind of nice if you didn't have to worry so much about getting a permit. Just, you know, we never know if any of this stuff's going to work or not, right? So if you actually had something that worked, and then the Park Service says, oh, look, you're doing all this stuff out there. Now you have to pay this retroactive permit fee or something you know that's what they used to Mm -hmm. do now they won't have to do or now it might not happen so that could be Mm -hmm. a little freeing
1: and it's different in canada as well for those listening here it's it seems to be a little quite a bit looser actually Uh, there are permit systems in place in national and various provincial parks but they're not Uh, they're not all mandatory, but it's something that, you know, I encourage people to research themselves. In most places, it's not required, especially from a freelance perspective. And the same idea that Michael was saying, once one or two people, it's not that not that situation. I'm no expert on it, but I just I have never encountered it. And I know many people in the park system and that it's not required from everything I've seen for still photography. But I think. I think if somebody needs any kind of assistance and is a bigger film crew, then maybe that's a different category. And of course, that's not what I've done thus far, so I haven't researched that. But right. anyway,
0: it's just good to keep on the radar, just keep mm-hmm. watching it, and just see what happens because it does ultimately yeah, for affect sure. all of us.
2: Does anybody have anything else on? That topic, Mark, you had one more thing?
1: No, I, I'm just assuming that my head's in the same space. Uh, what Michael was saying, we had another thing to talk about that we could bring up today. And there's just been a lot of activity about this new Sony camera. And
2: oh, uh, yeah.
1: not that I want to take a lot of time on it, but it's intriguing. I mean, I don't even either. I keeps... don't want to
2: think about it anymore because I'm... <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, Ron! I right. don't think you. I don't think it would have been. I don't know. My opinion on it, it's. It's. I don't think it's that much different. It's a 60 – 50. No, no, no. no. Thirty Sorry. frames
1: a second. I was talking thirty about price. frames a second at. Oh yeah, oh, we'll get there. Yeah, fifty megapixels. <laughs> but the other—that's that's one of the things that caught my eye. I mean, clearly they've upped the bar in some areas, but it's so much more expensive yep. that it's like. Hmm. You know, is it is it worth it? it, it is. Uh, was it sixty
3: four hundred yeah. U.S. It's sixty four to or sixty seven one of the two. Yeah, but that's it's what we used
0: cheap, to pay for those other. If I had a one DX Mark a, II, that's what it's that a one DX.
1: Yeah, cost. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. I get that, but it's just the the landscape seems to be different now. I mean, I could see there will be people who will buy it without a blink of an eye price isn't relevant but i think for a lot of people you know if you can compare a camera that pulls off a very similar set of specs at two thousand dollars less that's that's a big a big difference
3: three thousand mm-hmm. dollars less <laughs>
1: three yeah Yeah. i'm jumping so back the and forth. it 6, is
3: yeah yeah
2: US. There have been so some pretty big jumps in a1. technology a1. yep the sony, sony AA1. a1 and the the jumps in technology are huge for the autofocus system is the biggest thing so the a9 mark ii was the fastest focusing camera out there it would do 100 focus calculations per second and this a1 does 200 focus calculations per second so as far as autofocus for video this thing's going to be a monster but you know, as Mike's 8K. pointed out in the past, yeah, 8k at 30. And then uh, as, but as Mike's pointed out in the past, if you're going to use autofocus for video, you're not going to necessarily be able to create the shots that you want because it's, it's going to jump from subject to subject or it focuses when it wants to focus and doesn't, you know, you can't control when that focus is pulled. So there are are still some limitations you know as good as autofocus is for video there's still some limitations to it and you know to maintain your creativity manual focus is still the way to go for video
0: yeah with wildlife you know you figure if you're shooting people and you're just like vlogging or you know it's perfect because that face detection is pretty incredible Mm -hmm. with the sony stuff
1: yeah you know half the time wildlife's clear of of structure though too you know you could get a pocket as it goes through a clearing or you're waiting for this bear to come along through a meadow there are places where it would be fantastic you would just have to be prepared to jump back and forth for other situations but we haven't tested this camera to compare it to the other ones that we're familiar with to see how well it tracks i mean speculation would be how could it be that much better when a your subject goes behind 17 branches right but we haven't, we don't know that for sure, but odds are it's similar, but I, I'm excited about, you know, I'm again, still sitting in the bleachers for mirrorless cameras, but for handheld video, the autofocus for when it's applicable will be kick. but I can't wait to do that. But then there'll be situations that, yeah, you just can't do it all that way. You're not even Wouldn't in be- the
0: bleachers. You're in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, here's the other thing on that subject. Uh, to my defense, to some degree, I keep hearing from photographers that currently the D850 sensor creates the best images color-wise. And, and so the Nikon Z or Z7 two is the same sensor. So I'm still leaning that way, even though there's some specs that don't quite match up with the R5 for video perhaps, and I'm not an expert on this stuff just from what I've heard and for the Sonys, but if the photos look better and I'm just hearing this from people, if they do, then I'm like that's the most important thing at the end of the day is is I want them to be as and I guess it depends on one's personal preferences, but I really like what comes off the 850. So, I, you know, if I was, again, if we were able to play ball and do trips right now and create a lot of content, I would order the the Z7-2 right now and move on with that. But I'm not because something could come out better or, but anyway, one a, a fellow, and I won't say who, because he's giving an opinion emailed me today and said that he likes the Canon, um, images off the camera the r5 sensor better than the sony results not that he's tested the a1 but he likes the color profiling better on that so anyway the price point's a big deal but it's exciting in the sense that if if it is we haven't tested it it's a different sensor right i think than what they've mm-hmm. had before so yeah, who it's knows? a new sensor and if if it is superior in ways it could justify the price point for professionals or serious amateurs or those with deep
2: pockets right wrong and i I wouldn't disagree the d850s images are are tough to beat they really are color depth um the color depth is the biggest thing the colors that you get off the the nikon well it's actually a sony sensor but out of the d850 i still have not been able to even come close to replicating
0: see and i if i go back to your instagram feed I like the images you're taking with the Canon with the two to four.
2: Well, Over that's the because older my, stuff that
0: you had with the eight fifty.
2: Well, and that, yeah, the two hundred to five hundred is not even on the same playing field. As good as it is, it's not on the same playing field as the two hundred to four hundred Canon. The lens, the glasses, the quality of the glass is crazy. <laughs> that sucker is heavy, <laughs> and they still don't get. The colors out of the sensor but i you know as far as the sharpness of the images and the, the bokeh that that lens produces yeah it's tough to beat for a zoom you know if you had a if you had a fixed focal length lens a prime you can obviously get a little bit sharper images but for a zoom that that lens is tough to beat and jason keeps asking me what lens because i say sony doesn't have the same lenses and they don't the that's what they need they need that 200 to 500 range but as sharp as the canon 200 to 400 then i think you'd see everybody convert
3: well they've stayed
2: ahead of the curve on the technology
3: yeah yeah but i don't think there's a lot of difference in sharpness from the the canon rf two to five or one to five sorry versus that two to four i mean i I don't see a lot of difference in sharpness from this lens than I do my 500 prime. I'm just being realistic. I mean, I, so I don't think it's, to me, it's not a sharpness issue. It's more of an aperture issue. You know, being yeah. able to shoot in that lower okay. aperture and they definitely need that. There's no doubt.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, the bottom line to all this stuff is it's, it's
1: totally subjective, right?
3: Yeah. No, no, it it sure. Like, <laughs> it's just like what
2: photography like. <laughs> is totally subjective.
1: Yeah. All um, of it is, but it's fun to talk about. It. And since since each of us has used various systems in the field and some of this new gear, it's, it's great to get feedback. And, and for somebody like me who hasn't made that jump yet, I'm just, I'm taking it all in and listening to all the different brands. I have some brand loyalty just due to 25 years at Nikon and being happy with it throughout. But, you know, there's a lot of advances that can change the volume of material we can produce both stills and videos now. And if there's a system that, you know, if the R5 on the one to 500 frees up so much more with mobility, then some right. to think about, but in the, in the, it's just such an odd year because it's like press pause on so much of what we would be doing normally. So that's, it gives time to just sit back and see how it develops, but it wouldn't normally be the case.
0: Did I send you guys yeah. that picture the other day of that? new 28 to 70 f2 rf lens Mm
2: -hmm. i have it
0: you have that lens
2: i have i have that lens yeah you bought it it's about 57 pounds it's a 28 to 70 (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of glass in that thing that is super sharp yeah all the way through the zoom range and yeah it's a great lens but it's not cheap
0: a friend of mine just rented it, so she was doing a a yeah. dog shoot for some dog company just last mm-hmm. week, and she rented it, and when she got back, she was like, I'm going to buy that, and I said, well, did you like what you got out of what you the rented lens? And she's like, I love it. I said, just buy that one, because they're hard to get right now. I don't think they're in stock right now. You so, can't get
2: them right now. Yeah, yeah,
0: so she just bought it right from the rental company. I said, if you think it's good, and it was like brand new, I saw it, so... And if you yeah. like it, buy it. So she did. So I've heard really good things.
2: I'm planning on shooting with that lens
0: all next year for the moose. Yep,
2: yeah, I was I was doing enough uh, real estate photography that I thought I could justify that lens, and it is the highest quality zoom, you know, short zoom, wide angle zoom that I've ever shot with or seen images from. It's great. But it is heavy.
3: So you gotta shoot with a <laughs> tripod, huh?
2: Well, if, Wrong, you're gonna, <laughs> if you're gonna be out
3: there for very long, yeah. You
2: know, <laughs> no, it's not that bad. It's not as heavy as a two to four, and I shoot that handheld. So <laughs> I was just thinking this. Oh Mark's transition to the to mirrorless is kind of like when I was a kid, oh, we used to have these <laughs> we had these hot pools in the hot springs. He's in Thermopolis. That's that's what makes Thermopolis famous. And they had this high dive. And so you'd stand in line at the high dive. There was always this one kid that would get up on the high dive and just sit there and think about it. <laughs> and hold up the line.
3: <laughs> and then start crying and climb back down the ladder. No, <laughs> no.
2: not not. Not crying, just no. contemplating. Well, I think Mark I might...
1: is still on the ladder then. Yeah. <laughs> I, You know, I might not dive, but I'll jump. <laughs> Eventually
2: jump. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I just thought that was funny. But that's kind of what it reminded me of. Because you've been talking about, you know, the the Z7 for quite a while. Yeah. And now that they've got the dual card slots, and they've, they have made yeah. some improvements. They're using the... The D850 sensor, which is a great sensor, dare I say, phenomenal. <laughs> but <laughs> now that that's now that that's in there, I I think it might might be time for you, Mark. I mean, I don't want to spend your money, but yeah,
1: the 500PF and the Z7 or Z7 II. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It I think you happen. just
0: came up with our new t shirt, Ron. I can see a caricature <laughs> of Ron in it with the little bubble that says, Dare I say phenomenal?
2: <laughs> I thought you meant Mark on the high dive. <laughs> well, <laughs> well that would work yeah. too. Well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: holding it holding like with seventeen cameras wrapped around his neck. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. We it better crazy get into some questions. This is
1: camera gear
2: is awesome. this year has been insane the technology jumps that every manufacturer has made it's crazy
0: you know one last thing so, i was thinking about that today when all the sony stuff came out so when the r5 came out you know sony's got that other camera right there and how frustrating it has got to be for all this hype to be going on and they know that this camera's sitting right there in r&d right and they're just like oh you people just wait somebody some engineers, like you just wait this is going to be awesome <laughs> it's got to be frustrating and to be in the r&d department anywhere
2: and ours won't, won't overheat <laughs> canon doesn't the canon doesn't anymore either could Go that ahead. be
1: happening at nikon right now could it be oh the it,
2: frustration in the r&d department right could, the z9 if they, if they weren't
1: we're all we're all hoping so yeah who knows of course it may or may <laughs> not but who it knows, knows?
2: If things get better financially, fiscally for him, I, I hope that that is in the conversation right now. So not that I know Nikon's financial picture, except for just a little tiny bit. All right. Let's uh, cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> you are a banker. <clears throat> I, I am. and But, but do not take I financial bank. advice I'm, from wrong. No, you can't on this Wild podcast. Exposed Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You've heard the expressed opinions of Ron Hayes. This is not Reflects. <laughs> <It is. laughs> the opinions of Wild and Exposed Podcast or Truth and Legend, Truth Legend Productions.
1: <laughs> uh, that's good. Or there. Michael Moore. Right. Or Jason Law. <laughs> or <laughs> Mark Raycroft. Or Ron Hayes. <laughs> or Ron
2: Hayes. <laughs> or Ron Hayes. <laughs> right. I'm just throwing it out there conversation all right let's get we are running down rabbit holes all over the place let's get to some listener questions we've got some video questions this week and so we're gonna this will be one if you want to see the the folks that have been generous enough to jump on camera hit us up on youtube the friday after this podcast comes out and mark will have this up on youtube be able to see the nice smiling faces of those who have Given us some some, uh, some good questions to go with this week. And I think, you know, there's not that many video questions that we have. There's uh, six, I believe, but they're good. And I, I think they will lead to some pretty good conversations. So I'm kind of excited to get into them. You guys ready for this?
1: Yes. I'm on the diving board.
2: <laughs> Made it up the ladder. Yeah, hey, that's a, that's ladder.
1: another T-shirt waiting to happen too. I think. So. I'm on the board. I got my blue light glasses on. Actually, I don't. I need to
2: get those. <laughs> Jeff Birmingham from South Texas. I was curious how y'all post-process with uh, Lightroom, uh, Photoshop. Or are you using the manufacturer software? Or what y'all use and how you use it? That question. That question coming to us from Jeff Birmingham, and basically, I think what he was getting at is, you know, what we use not almost workflow type question. He's asking which software we use to post-process our images. And then um, also he had some questions about plugins in a, in a roundabout way. So who wants to take that one on first as far as workflow software
3: wise? I think we've talked about it before, but I, I'd use Lightroom and Photoshop. I use Lightroom mainly for most of my editing and Every image I process does go through Photoshop for some final touch-up and, um, and uh, my watermarking and resizing and things of that nature. Um, I don't know how detailed we want to get, but I always do save a tiff of whatever I do in Lightroom to Photoshop. And then I also save a JPEG full size. Then I also save a JPEG small size, um, size to go onto Instagram um, for social media. And as far as plugins go, I I do have some um, presets that I use. Uh, there's I don't remember the name of them. I've had them for a long time, but there's lots of presets out there on the internet that you can go and look at and see if there's a package that you like. And a lot of them are doing sales all the time. You can get multiple packages for pretty pretty cheap nowadays. Um, but that's uh, those are valuable in my opinion, and they do help you kind of shortcut and get to um, maybe a more fi- finished product quicker and i also have learned recently to create my own presets and i've been doing more of that and you know kind of getting a style that i like and creating my own presets to shorten up my workflow in that time coming soon to the wild and exposed store i was the, just
0: going to say that the jason loftus Lightroom signature presets
2: preset. <laughs> <laughs> i've got the loftus i mine is called the loftus filter and it's when i have that nice shadowy background <laughs> with the with the well-lit subject and that's what my preset is called is the loftus filter you think I was think I was always just giving you a hard time Jason but that's what I named it
3: (laughs) oh that's too funny (laughs) so yeah Uh, coming
2: soon to Wild and Expose, we might have some (laughs) presets for you purchase off the website
3: yeah the only other thing I'd mention that I do use and I have been using it more and more is Topaz Um, I have been using Topaz Two of the modules mainly. One is the the denoise for sure, and it's very effective. Um, and I've been using the uh, gigapixel for resizing images for printing. Seems to do a very very good job of resizing images and not losing quality. Matter of fact, some cases it actually improves the quality of the image when I resize it. So, which is very interesting to me. But um, so is that just for monster
0: images? Is that why you're resizing stuff? Just because you want to go super big? Or if you crop into
2: an image deeper than you normally would, Gigapixel can resize it. So, you know, you crop in, you can't obviously crop into the size of a postage stamp, but you can crop fairly deep into the image and then resize it to a, a 20 by 30 or 24 by 32, um, and and still be able to produce a pretty good sized print. And it has the AI technology. I think that's why you're seeing the the improvement at times jason because it still has you know all of topaz's software plugins have the ai technology in them so they all make a little bit of difference without really doing a lot of tweaking but yeah yeah i would say my my workflow is probably exactly the same as yours pretty much and you know even down to the using topaz a little bit more here and there not on every image of course but i've i've been going back with being stuck at home i've been going back and re-editing like stuff like clear back to when i was shooting the canon 50d um you know my first camera and some images that were a little bit noisy to do anything with and that denoise is just such a. like you uh, jason's mentioned in the past every time they do an update there is a serious substantial improvement in the software and to t- take some of those images that were shot in the dark, you know, six, eight, ten years ago, and to be able to Im- improve them with uh, with this denoise and make them usable, it's, I mean, it, it pays for itself pretty quick. So, yeah. Jason, I
0: think you should do a, a video for our YouTube on your workflow.
4: Okay. Because it'd yeah. be
0: interesting to see an image from start to finish, just going through all of those channels that you run it through. Yeah. And then I've got a question about TIFF for you. But before you do that, uh-huh. Mark, you should do the same thing because your workflow is totally different—not—not not by a long shot, but it's different. So if you could just explain your workflow, and I think if you did a video too, it'd be super cool to see that
1: comparison. But yeah, Topaz came out with an update today that I haven't downloaded yet, and you're right. I mean, they, they have been significant in the past. I have uh, topaz denoise. I've used it on a few occasions and it's just kind of, for me, it's in the wings if it's necessary for something like that. There was a, a situation with a really exceptionally unique white tail that I photographed last year. And I only was able to capture two or three photos, super skittish. He stopped in this meadow when he was crossing and looked back and and it was a horizontal frame on the 850 of 45 megapixels. So I also cropped that vertically. But I zoomed in a bit. And this is an exception to the rule because of this particular deer, why I did this. But I zoomed in, and I wanted to make it cover-worthy. And then I put it through denoise a bit as well. So I'm excited to see what the new update will do every time it's tweaked. you know, it, I mean, it's good already, but it's exciting to see what, what might come of it with, with the newest update but my workflow is similar in a way although i don't use lightroom it's and i i'm feeling old school here for all kinds of things tonight but photoshop is where i go i open my raw images in camera raw it's become such a versatile piece of software now with so many adjustments that can be done in there something that i've done the past 4 months that's new in my system that or my my technique is I'll try the when you look open in camera raw, you can hit auto. And that just takes all those sliders and the AI guesses what your picture should look like. And more than half the time it's like, wow, I like what it's doing. I always make adjustments after that though. And I adjust some of the sliders back or this way or that to get it to where I visually want the image to end up in Camera Raw. But, and there are times as well where it clearly takes it too far for whatever reason. And I might go back to the original and start from there with the sliders manually. But it's a new step in my workflow to take the raw image in Camera Raw, hit Auto, and see what it will do. And most of the time, I like where it's gone, and I just bring some of it back. Then I open it into Photoshop and I do the tweaking in Photoshop that I need to do. And mostly that's um, with levels. I, I play with levels. I play with saturation. And then I'll save it as a 16-bit TIFF in a folder. And we talked about this uh, on a meeting off podcast not too long ago and i was kind of like i never brought this up with the guys because my workflow in so many ways seems so tedious but i'll leave it as that tiff in the folder so i'll do let's say i'll do 50 images and put them in that folder or a species related for that so it could be in this case we were talking about a deer a moment ago it could be fall 2020 white tail deer folder tiffs they're all in there and then i i leave it I might go on and edit something else. I'll come back in a couple of days, and I open those TIFFs in Photoshop again, and then I'll save them as 8-bit high-res JPEGs in a new folder. But why I give that space and time is I really find it allows me to tweak the image to where I want it to be for final delivery by looking at it a second time. There are adjustments, there are things I notice, and it's often color-related that I'll tweak most frequently. Then I have, so I have the TIFF 16-bit that y'all can always go back to and work over and over and over again. As you resave those, you don't lose any quality. The JPEGs, once I create that high-res 8-bit JPEG folder, I do not ever rework those. Those are ready for delivery to client. So I have the low-res folder that I make after that, and I'm, I'm using... Photo mechanic to do that still these days. It's a great piece of software where I just put the whole folder and I set the parameters, including the watermark. And it batch processes all of them into a designated new folder for low resolution. And I currently, I just put them at 1,000 pixels with the watermark. That's what I deliver to clients for teasers or submission requests. And they request the high res, I'll pull from the high res 8-bit JPEG folder. But if I ever feel when I open those JPEGs later that, oh, well, you know, I could improve upon that again, I don't never do it as a JPEG and resave because they if you do it two or three times, you can degrade the image quality. I want to make sure my client receives the best JPEG they can because they're likely to do their own little thing and resave it. And if they do that, I don't want it to already be two steps along the way. So I'll go back. If I do decide to make a new JPEG, Later on, I go back to the TIFF folder. That's why I keep that. I can't ever remember going back to RAW folder and starting from scratch on an image. It's always just the TIFF bank. I keep the RAWs, and they're backed up. Who knows? I mean, new AI software comes out, what we'll do five years from now. Who knows? But it's the TIFF is is the backbone, and then the high-res JPEG folder for delivery.
0: I guess my question was, after hearing that so you guys are doing the tiffs because that's the only thing that photoshop like you can't open a raw image in photoshop with you mark you have to open it in camera raw and jason you're opening up a raw image in lightroom and then those respective programs are what gets you to photoshop right or no i guess you said you went right from
1: camera raw to photoshop camera raw is is the software that opens well actually, okay I, I skipped a step i apologize i open the folders in adobe bridge so oh, i'll take that my memory old card gal. i so i'll take the memory card <laughs> <laughs> so let's say there are 1200 images taken today they're raw and i create a new folder a raw folder with that day on it and i download them that there off the memory card and back them up twice then I open that in bridge and I can look at it with the film strip view or oh guys I've only seen this 10 million times what's what's the grid view which looks like a a sleeve, a sleeve of slides but you can see yeah. that at the top I should know what that's called so I look at that first but really I do everything with a film strip and so I'm in bridge I'll go along so there's 10 images with similars I'll toggle through them pick the best one hit it and then i enlarge it to 100 percent to verify sharpness now i know i'm good then i hit open it goes to camera raw where i can tweak the 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 scene on the background i can level it i can do minor crop if i want to and then i do that and then i do the auto test and see where the sliders go and how i like what what camera raw does with it so yeah bridge is my first step then Camera Raw, and like I said, when I open an image, I some there's two options at the top in Camera Raw. You can tweak, uh, adjust the level of the image. So so often handheld now with all the composition and excitement. I mean, we can get it right, but just a little bit of adjustment to levels sometimes warranted, or cropping in a bit, and that's and then I'll go back and hit Auto and go on as I just described in tremendous detail a minute ago.
2: So Mark is going to do a series of. This- videos on youtube (laughs) that'll show his workflow
1: no i'll just do time lapse it'll be fantastic it'll be a 30 second time lapse video
2: of a three-week process no i was thinking i just saw an adobe bridge um, class offered by the uh, smithsonian institute's (laughs) museum of photographic (laughs) knowledge
1: this is the as part of the Creative Cloud Suite, it's Adobe 2021 Bridge. I like it. It works. It's my workflow.
3: <laughs> I just but feel I like we really could save you a couple steps if you just use Lightroom for Lightroom. both of those programs. <laughs> yeah. <Lightroom>. It does <laughs> I the do, same exact so, thing. Uh, it does. Sure, I'll tell it, I'll you the
2: other, thing, the other thing that I use Photo Mechanic for, Mark, um, because I do have that, but I use that for my culling. Because as soon as you upload the images, you can get through them. And, and Lightroom is super slow because you're working with a, a preview. And to be able to really, you know, fine-tune your culling, if you do cull your images, Michael keeps them all.
1: I do. It's easy, at um, Bridge. You just toggle and hit yeah. delete.
2: Right. And you in Photo Mechanic, you just scroll through super fast and just flag it, flag it, flag it. Flag it and then you can delete all the flagged images. It's a really fast process there, too. Mm, cool. Yeah,
1: It's, it's something. And Michael
2: it's... opens in Lightroom. If it isn't done sliders, in 10 seconds, I'm out. <laughs> Send it to the printer. I shot it in cover mode, so it goes right and straight to the printer. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool. why I
0: didn't want to get involved in that conversation, because mine's pretty pathetic.
2: All right. Next question. My name is Kelly Elmer, and I have a question for the exposed weld and Exposed team. How do you protect your gear from bad weather, inclement weather, when you're out shooting in the field? Okay, good question from Kelly. Uh, we're kind of coming to the tail end of this winter, but how do you protect your gear during inclement weather? Springtime is another time where you have to be careful with your gear because of the, the rainstorms, that kind of thing. And and in Wyoming, quite honestly, the time where you see the most damage to your gear is like August because the dust gets so bad, and then the weather starts to change, so the winds pick back up again, and you're getting dust all over your gear. So that, that's a good question. So what do you guys use to protect your gear? Hold on a when second. You're in Have you guys bed? noticed
0: that Ron has clearly left winter? It's still January, and he's like, yeah, we're, we're out of winter already. We don't need to... <laughs> I think he's just thinking positive about all that grouse stuff he has coming up.
2: Thinking about when this thing's gonna air.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well it's not gonna air in April. (laughs) And I (laughs)
2: Uh. True enough. True enough. I I'll just say I don't do a lot except um when I'm, you know, if it's real rainy, I'll put a I'll put a lens coat on it, just to keep keep the water out of it. If I shoot in really cold weather, I don't bring my gear inside unless it's in a bag, in a garbage bag, and something that's going to keep the condensation off of it once it hits room temperature. Um, so if you have a photo bag that's fairly weather tight, I'll take it inside in a photo bag, and until it has had time to warm up, I don't take it out of that bag. Uh, because it, condensation gets into, you know, sometimes defeats the weather sealing as good as it is in some of these cameras and get into the and crannies. And if you fog up a lens, if you get condensation inside your camera body and develop mold, there's really nothing you can do about it. And that's obviously not something that's going to happen immediately, but it can happen, you know, over time. So you have to keep that as dry as possible. And so that's one time that I I am pretty particular about how I treat my gear when I, when I come back inside from a really cold weather shoot. And if you're going to be out shooting in cold weather for days on end, you know, if the area and the safe, safeness of the area permits, I'll leave my cameras actually in the vehicle, just bring the batteries and cards in. But I never let them, never, or try not to ever let them warm up.
3: Yeah, no, I wouldn't say much different. I use the lens coat, rain coat, um, as well if it gets, if it's real rainy. But for the most part, I just try to, you know, keep it dry, keep it clean. And, um, you know, when it gets rainy, throw that coat on there and just shoot. You know, matter of fact, one of my favorite times to shoot is when it's snowing good or raining. So, you know, I'm definitely not going to miss those opportunities. So, and and the gear that we have for most of us is pretty well weather sealed. So, um, I've learned to just rely on that too. I've got my cameras have gotten pretty wet before from rain and snow, and I've never had a problem to this point. So,
1: quick question: Are the Sony's known to be as weather sealed as Canon and Nikon? Are they on par with that? No. so that, that's so been the new one
2: A1 big knocks for a yeah for a wildlife guy that's been one of the one of the places where you want to be really careful is weather sealing's not been as good you know like okay. the a7 series um, the a9 I think there is a little bit more I don't know for a fact but I think there's a little bit more weather weather sealing with the a9 series this is kind of a more pro level body and then right. i I did not read any I don't know if you guys read anything about weather sealing on the a1.
1: No, I didn't see it, but I, I mean, for the price point, one would hope so. And but yeah, that's something Agreed. to keep in mind. Yeah. And the 850, I personally, I've been really happy with what it's put up with. I mean, I for resale value. For those of you that might buy my camera equipment, I baby it. I I, I baby it so well. No, really, <laughs> I do look after it. But if it's uh, raining lightly or snowing, and you're on on a photo shoot, I just keep going. And if it's heavy enough, then I I do put a rain cover on it. Uh, I embarrassingly have a lens coat. I haven't tried it on yet. I just got it not too long ago. I have a custom one that a buddy made that I've used for years that could fit in the pocket, but it's no longer waterproof. It it doesn't take long to soak through. So I ordered the lens coat to test it. But I've been pleased with all the Nikon gear I've had over the years with what it will tolerate for weather. And and I won't repeat what Ron said, but as far as um, fogging up, same practice for sure and being aware of that i use an umbrella a lot yes
2: very good that's true <laughs> for do. multiple reasons right to fight the wind when you're videoing yeah, and the and wind
0: it helps a lot with the wind when you're shooting video you just can't have any shaky shake stuff going on so it it'll cut the wind for sure but more importantly like the video cameras i use have vents on them you know because they get very hot they would overheat if they didn't have it just like the r5 right So a lot of times you can't, if it's raining and in Alaska, it rains all the time, you know, in the summertime. So I'll just pull out my umbrella and then it works great. You know, I can fashion it where I can just put it through my backpack strap. So it's just right next to me and it covers the part of the camera that I care about. I don't worry too much about the lens out at the end, you know, and then for me, for a camera cover, I have never ever bought an actual camera cover. I always just take a, I usually have a couple of Gore-Tex jackets, you know, a backup in my backpack, and so I'll just throw a
3: jacket over it, and that seems to work. You know, it's funny, My, uh, we've talked about Bill Allard before on the podcast, but he's a good friend of mine, and um, he, I actually bought him for his birthday one year, um, and I can know I can say this because he doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I bought him a lens coat for his birthday one year and the the rain jacket and or the raincoat and he uh he has never used it um he he carries around um, walmart bags with him and when he has a rain situation or a garbage bag and he just pops holes and uses the walmart bag or whatever and it works works great so you know you guys if you're looking for a shortcut or a cheap way to do it just carry some walmart bags and works great (laughs) or an extra jacket (laughs) <laughs> yeah the
0: cool thing about the lens coat is it's kind of form-fitted and a lot of them have windows so you can mm-hmm. still see everything and operate everything so
3: there's something yeah, they work set real that. well yeah they do work really well i rely on mine quite a bit i it's on my my 500 prime quite a bit when it's inclement weather so yeah mine you just don't you just can't get a lens coat for
0: a red camera with the build out that i have so it just is an umbrella just more times than not works does the trick
3: well, like you mentioned That's, before, right? Shooting from a tripod, you can hook it right to the tripod a lot too yep. if it's raining. And, yep. Yeah, it's, it's not it's too nice. windy. It's perfect.
2: Yeah. Cool. Lay down the the challenge for Lens code as a company. Come right. up with one that works with a video setup, right? Yeah, there, there are
0: go. some out there. There are some other companies making them. But I'll tell you what, the, each configuration is so different. And everybody, you, if we all had the same red camera setup we'd all be shooting it different. Some would use a viewfinder, some would use an EVF, some would use the camera to make the adjustments, some would use it through their phone. I mean, it's just so many configurations. We'd all use different lenses, so it's really tough. You know, with the DSLR stuff, it's, you know, you can nail that. Most people have a bigger lens and then the camera body, right? So it makes it a little bit
2: easier. Thanks for that, Kelly. All right, next question.
1: Gary Mullins from Colorado. Uh, my questions are around networking. How do you guys find places to network and get your images out with publications and other opportunities? And also with uh, local wildlife enthusiasts, I'm having a hard time connecting and getting information.
3: Thank you.
2: Okay, so Gary Mullins asking about networking, not just networking with other photographers, although that was part of the question. Uh, also networking with, you know, e- editors, people that might use your images. Mark's out of here. That is honestly a very tough question right now because even the people that have had those relationships, and I'm going to defer this to Mark here in just a second, even the people that have had those relationships for decades are struggling right now because the landscape of those periodicals is changing tremendously. Uh, Networking with an editor takes a lot of time. And it's a, it's a lot of trust because you've got to be able to deliver. And, uh, Mark, I'm going to defer this one, throw this one right over to you on that part.
1: You know, I want to say that I love our audience and I love the show. It's And I love the interactions. I love sharing so much knowledge that we've gained over the years. But my microphone just stopped working, guys. Can you hear me? <laughs>
3: you're breaking up (laughs) it's it's a tough
1: you know okay so historically even when the landscape was more robust with publications and the opportunities were it was always a challenge there were always professionals that had done this for years or decades established relationships and were good at being wildlife and nature photographers so it was a matter of even 15 years ago, when there were five times the opportunities for print publication there are now, or maybe even far beyond that magnitude, it was a challenge to break into it because a new person, as Ron alluded to, it's a business relationship. There's a trust. And it's not just a trust in image quality. That's number one. But it's a working relationship. It's what's that person like to work with? All of these people who buy images, no matter what their role is, they're passionate about their product, but it's also their job. They have to run at a certain level of efficiency, just like we do. And that all these variables come into play. And so even when there were so many more publications, it took a long time to break into it professionally, to get a consistent request from any one publication. And I mapped it out in the beginning. It just seemed to take this, for the most part, it took five years to work with somebody new and get into the point where you were, where I became a regular contributor to every product they put out. Took about five years and it wasn't necessarily, as I pointed out, solely due to image quality in any way, it's a relationship and all of these clients Around the world, no matter what they're producing, only need so many images. They want a variety. They want to work with a handful of the best suppliers that can, just like in any, any industry. The best suppliers, the best people to work with. And it, it takes a lot of effort to get into that. Now, the landscape has changed radically in the past five years. There are so many images out there. The new cameras facilitate exponential growth in people's portfolios, and they capture what we're seeing so much better, requiring less uh, post-processing, less work to to create an image to get to market. And you can shoot infinite amounts and and pick out those, those outstanding compositions, images, the light, the expression, the behavior that happened. It's fantastic. It's an amazing time to be a photographer in any genre, any genre, but wildlife and nature photography as well. That's flooded the market at a time when, especially the print industry is really getting squeezed. I work literally seven days a week. There's the odd time something in life takes me away to something else. I work around the clock. When I'm up, I go. For, I have to go for walks. I do things, and I'm out shooting. But editing, marketing, all these things. We've had multiple guests on Wild and Exposed that have pointed out that this, to be a professional, it has to be what you'd love to do. Not only because that resonates through your imagery and your marketing, but it is a tremendous amount of commitment to have and find the, the avenues to generate enough revenue to support oneself or a family, and it comes from multiple sources. But the landscape is, is very difficult to get into now, and I'm not saying it's impossible, because there are opportunities out there. I want to say that the photography business no matter what market you're dreaming of or are currently participating in is a phenomenal industry to be a part of it's creative it's 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 just exciting to see to create work to create artwork and see it in print and have and be able to generate a business from it so it and all the people involved the vast vast majority of them are fantastic human beings and You just, you have to be pragmatic and and be careful and stand up for your work. Just a couple of things on how
0: to do it if you are starting out. So this is all predicated on if you have a decent portfolio and you feel like you've got enough to go out there and make it. Back in the day, one of the ways to get started was, because you can't, you can't, you're never going to go out and compete with Mark in in like big game stuff, right? Because he's just got such a vast library of stuff somebody that's just starting out has this little minuscule library but the one way you could compete is you might write an article you know find some behavior or find something that or if you have pictures that illustrate something you include an article with it and then submit it out and what that does is it takes a lot of the work away from an editor if an editor can get a project that has everything all packaged tightly together they may be willing to run that just because it's less work for them. But it still has to meet all the standards that Mark pointed out. And that's just one way to get in. But if you want to keep getting in, you got to have such a vast library to to keep it going. But that's one way to just test the waters. But like Mark said too, it's there's just not as many periodicals out there anymore. So the it's so hard to find that right spot to do that i just wanted to give some way to to kind of do it the other way the other thing that i used to do was there was always magazines that would have like a a last page image or they would have a first look image or you know table of contents image and that was always a good way to get like a one-off you know it wasn't necessarily competing with you know, a bunch of images to illustrate an article or something like that. It was just a really cool image and you just happened to get one really cool thing. And, you know, that's how I used to get stuff published like an outdoor photographer or, you know, some of the, and I don't even know if that magazine exists anymore. I don't even know if that's, that's still on the, yeah. the newsstand. Not sure. Still pretty big. Yep. But that's a, that's a possibility. You know, it's a shot in the dark just cause the competition is so huge, but that's a couple of ways to, uh, to try to, test the waters but the name of the game is rejection right you know you just gotta yeah. just know that you're up against some really stiff competition and it's just going to be persistence is will pay off if you if you
1: got the goods you have to have a lot going on
2: a lot yeah. you know
1: because there's in and they've reduced contributors for for writing and photography for a lot of publications just because of the landscape. So you need the variety of material, but you know, honestly, that's Michael gave a super top secret ninja pro tip there with that. And that's that if, if you can marry up a writer and have a story to go with a collection of images, that, that's a great way to approach. And I'd almost caution people to try and have three or four or five of those in the bank before, approaching for the first one because you don't just want to do the one sale and make that if if you establish a relationship for the one then you can then follow up with another pitch and another and then i'll give you time to create more so have have a variety of proposals in the wings after the first one is uh, accepted and the other thing too is for portfolio we all love portraits whether it's a close-up or an environmental portrait but when it comes to selling images in the publication world, it's a lot of its behavior. You need all the behaviors and you have to have that library. And if you're working with an editorial client, it's on a freelance perspective, you know, the more often you have what they want that day, the more you'll get business. If they ask you for a certain behavior, whatever the species of animal or bird, and you don't have it, two or three of those asks, you know, it can hurt the future that way, especially for a new relationship. So have a lot of behavior, a lot of variety uh, for the species that you're marketing and knowing that market as well, knowing what you're you're approaching and making sure you cover as many of those bases as you can before you knock on the
0: door. Well, the one thing I was going to add is if you're writing an article or if you want to do the article photo package, I can't write to save my life. So I would always try to team up with somebody. You know, I would go Mm -hmm. to find, uh, you know, they used to have like an outdoor writers and photographers association. So you could go to a, a meeting like that and meet up with some writers and, and find an avenue that way. But it's super difficult. I mean, it's just a, I just wanted to give something though, that, that is a potential for to try out to, to get into that market.
2: And i I've got a couple other things. I know Jason is on one of the same mailing lists that I'm on. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to him, but I want to get to the second part of Gary's question. And that is how to get out there and interact with other photographers. Uh, get yourself out there with, with other photographers. And I, I've got some ideas myself and I know we've talked about this in the past, but Jason, um, how do you get out there and, uh, basically get to know other people in the field? Um,
3: yeah, I just think you just got to be willing to put yourself out there. Um, a lot of my connections have come through social media and I try to keep myself open to, to the opportunity to shoot with new folks and, you know, meet up with folks in places and, uh, you know that that benefits both me and them hopefully right that's the it should be a two-way um benefit in my opinion um but yeah I, and i just try to i i guess i approach it from a standpoint that i can learn something from anybody and i think that if i have that attitude then people are willing to you know um maybe sit down and and shoot with you and and uh share information with you over time i mean the the thing is is you can <laughs> it's hard because social media in a lot of ways has really taken away a lot of the I guess secrets if you will of places to shoot Um, a lot of the places that people shoot nowadays are used to be places that were very unknown a lot of people didn't realize and now with social media the way it is a lot of that's just not a secret anymore there still are a few places I think for folks that are you know pretty secretive and I think it's you got to be careful because sometimes um, that pressure that can come from social media can actually pressure the animals and pressure them to a way that um, is not good for the animals or the good for the folks that are around either. So it's a, it's a very, very fine balance. And I think most people try to keep their network fairly small so that they're not putting the critters and um, the the place that they shoot in that situation. So, you know, it's another one of those kind of sensitive questions, but it really just boils down to creating those relationships with folks um networking with other folks join your local camera club i think we talked about that before Um, and just interact with other photographers and pay attention to what they're doing and where they're going and i think over time you'll be led into the fold so to speak you know you kind of got to earn your place if you will with and that's not any different than any other (laughs) any other um, um hobby activity whatever it might be right i think it's very similar um, but yeah, that's all. That's all I do. I just try to be personable and try to interact with folks as much as possible. And then once you do get let in, a big, big, big part of that is to do not betray folks' trust. And if you are, sh- if things are shared with you, then you really should respect those things and keep it to yourself. Um, you know, and there's even there's places that I will shoot that I have, that have been shared with me. That I w- literally will not go shoot those places unless I contact the person that l- that led me to that location and just make sure they're they're okay. Even though it's public land, I mean I technically don't have to. I, there's no r- rule that says I have to, right? But out of respect for them and what they've been willing to share with me, I will not go shoot those locations without at least contact and reaching out to that person, make sure that they're they're comfortable with that. So uh, I guess those are the things that come to my mind.
2: You said a couple of things that I was thinking of, and i I knew you would go there, you know as far as networking with other photographers, the local contests not the not the magazine contests, not that kind of thing where anybody's gonna take your images, but the local contests are good places to meet other photographers and as well as the camera clubs. I think that's probably the biggest one find a find a camera club. Within that club, you're going to find a few people that you really mesh with, connect with, kind of have the same passions, and that's going to lead you into other relationships. And, you know, relationships and networking is all about growth. You know, there. think of, you know, Jackson Hole, for instance. A lot of good stuff over in, in Jackson, Grand Teton National Park. There's a select few – People that text back and forth, they'll text locations of animals. But again, like Jason just covered, they respect the, the animal, number one. Number two, they respect each other and that information doesn't go too far beyond that. If you're let into a circle like that, can't emphasize enough of what Jason said, don't betray, betray that trust because number one, you're not going to get that information anymore. Number two, you know, the, the more respect you show to others, the more it's going to be reflected back to you and you might get a phone call someday when, you know, they've got a mountain lion in a cave that's got a den there when nobody else gets that call. So those are, you know, networking is about time as well. You know, Mark talked about the time that it takes to to get in with an editor and that kind of thing professionally uh networking between photographers, that takes that takes a while too. And you might go out and do a shoot together. And the next time, you know, you you might get the, the like I said, you might get the call to come and join somebody on a on a good trip. So I think they're that's it's a very good question, Gary. And I'm glad you brought it up and we got a chance for Mark to get that off his chest again <laughs> with the
4: at you know, <laughs> the photo okay.
2: contest, but no wait, you you've had like forty five minutes on this subject. You have more?
1: No, I just <laughs> wanna say I wanna say something really quickly.
2: And and you make, make sure
1: I know, Jeez, Make sure to give back. There's no better time. It's just not yeah. this is I no know. longer nearly as competitive. It is competitive, but not it's better to share with your peers than to compete with them. Be colleagues. Mm-hmm. Not competitors. When you establish relationships with other people, absolutely, whether it's a mentor or whether it's a collection of from the photo club of people that you just gel with, make sure you give back and share locations back so that it's a mutual relationship. That way, I also wanted to get back on the subject where my where I went off the rails, and it's kind of funny where I went off the rails on it. So, and it, it, it took ten seconds. Marketing is very. And professionalism is very important. (laughs) But the final detail in that is efficiency nowadays. Everybody's got a lot on their plate and they're rushed. And so if you do have the good fortune to work with somebody and be offered an opportunity to show images, or if they request images for a project, is being as efficient as possible in getting it to them. If you're at your desk, get them to them that hour. By the next day... For sure by the next day but and if it has to take that long follow up with an email saying yeah is tomorrow morning okay but honestly if if I get a request and I'm near a device that can send the images I've got my portable hard drives in the field my laptop my portable office is always with me it's done right then because I know a significant portion of the time they're laying that out they're thinking about it right there and there's that or If they're asking two or three people to send images in for that project, and if the other two get them there before you and they like that, oh, this is it, this fits the bill, we're going to do it, it's done. Whereas if yours is equally as good or perhaps more striking, it's just efficiency in 2021 is a very critical element of success. So keep that in mind too when approaching it professionally. And just that courtesy, even if it's an art gallery and they're interested in your work, it's you know it's getting back to them well, the iron's hot, and they're excited to communicate with you.
2: Yeah, and I was just going to... Two things about networking with other photographers, too. That honestly can be a way in because some of those other photographers might be doing a story and they need something just to complete it. That might be a way to get yourself published. And then the other thing is... These lists that the editors send out, you know, call for images, they have their stories. They have their, you know, the main images that they're going to use. But some of these images that they want are just the most off-the-wall requests you've ever seen in your life. So don't pass up an opportunity to take a photograph. Some of them want, you know, they want cow up playing in a wallow or cow up playing in a pond. And you might be focusing all your attention on the bull. When the image that you can sell is over there in the water, splashing around. So don't pass things up. If you, you know, broaden, diversify your portfolio. And when those calls for images come out and you're fortunate enough to get on those lists, those email lists, you know, take the opportunity to give those filler images and get yourself started. Because once they recognize your name, that's, that's the beginning of the relationship. So good question, Gary that that thing could go a lot of different directions, and we took it a lot of different directions, but it it is a good question, a valid question today. Next one.
3: Hey guys, had a few people ask me recently how to get so close to animals, how to approach safely. Um, knowing the behavior and understanding it is uh, one of the most important things. Uh, I thought maybe you guys could answer the question. Of um what behavior to watch for with certain animals, um how to know if they're irritated, if they're uh calm, um, what to watch for. Thought that might be a good topic.
2: Okay, that question is from Dan Linhart. And I uh you know we could we could take this several different directions. So the question was. How do you get closer to animals? What kind of behavior cues do you pay attention to? That kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, it, it varies species to species. Some species are a lot more aggressive than others. Some are a lot more defensive than others. So that's another aspect you want to pay attention to. Is you don't want to get, an, you know, a bison, for instance. Photographing bison, you're legally required inside the national park to be a minimum of 25 yards. A bison is a huge animal. There is really no reason to be within 25 yards, first of all. Secondly, they can get easily agitated. Um, and, and bison are pretty easy to read. You, know, you watch them. If the tail's up, you better back up. You're too close. Um, that, that's the first cue with a bison that I can suggest, but just watching the animal's behavior, watching posture. If a bear, you know, you're within a hundred yards of a bear. If the bear is constantly looking up at you, you may be causing it a little bit of stress and you may need to create some more space. You know, it's just little things like that, little subtleties that you want to pay attention to. And there, I know each of these guys is going to take it a different direction, but I'll just, About closing the distance. You know, honestly, a lot of times we're photographing in places where these animals are habituated. So closing the distance isn't as big a deal. When you're shooting wild populations, I like to use blinds and be creative in, you know, whether it's a float blind or whether it's a natural blind that you're just bringing some shrubs together and kind of sliding into the shrubbery. to the natural habitat and just waiting. Um, Ghillie suits are great tools. They're kind of a mobile blind. Um, Those ghillie suits, you can take them pretty much anywhere. And it doesn't really even matter that they match the terrain, honestly. The biggest piece of it is that they're breaking up your silhouette so that the animal doesn't actually know that there's a person there. So a ghillie suit, you don't have to buy a different ghillie suit for every season of the year. Just find ways to break up your silhouette and uh, and create those kind of blind, natural blind opportunities.
1: Don't wear a ghillie suit where Sasquatch lives. Just saying. Just saying. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs>
3: it's not safe. It is. Yeah, we
2: are coming up on Valentine's Day. <laughs>
3: there could be an incident memories (laughs) memories
2: what do you guys think i mean that is a wide open question uh we all that's a question that we all deal with is how do we get close enough to get the images that we want to get and the other side of that coin is when do you back off because sometimes the better opportunity is to create space and get that environmental portrait
0: it's so species specific right and i think that an easy example that really does not involve danger would be like when jason and i were doing lizards last year what we would find is you know obviously patience is huge because you would find a lizard and you just have to just sit there and wait and just see let them get comfortable and know that you're not trying to eat them or ha- cause danger to them and then you know I would we were just slowly inching up you know six inches at a time sometimes a foot and then you just you can just watch you can just see the nervousness and if they're moving or if they twist their head really fast then you know okay well then this particular lizard is not going to deal with it but there was others that Jason and I were able to like you could get two feet away and they didn't care a bit so it's it's pretty easy to talk about when, with a little animal like that and something that you're not going to cause any danger to, and there's not a distance restriction. I mean, those little guys could scamper off in two seconds and be under a rock, and and we're not going to disturb what's going on with their habitat at all. But it was more than anything, closing the distance for me is patience.
1: You just yeah. got to put in the time. And don't do it if you don't know the species. If you don't know the behavior and, you know, you either have a guide or somebody who understands and can read animal behavior, but don't chance it. Respect the animals. Respect the space. Go for environmental portraits. They're kicking butt right now. Everybody loves the big landscape on social media, all that stuff. It's only if you're 100% sure of the situation. And as Michael said, all species are different. So, I mean, you could almost, it would consume a podcast to get into. We could pick 12 species and say, hey, this is how we approach or work them. Um, in, a, in a quick summary for animals that aren't aggressive, so I'll say caribou, for instance. With caribou, or it's a matter of playing wind. A lot of places I photograph, Um, I do photograph in parks, but a lot aren't. It's just wilderness and places I end up where there aren't any parameters. It's just a matter of enjoying and respecting the landscape and the animals that are there or that I am able to come across. But with caribou or any large mammal I photograph that I can approach, not bears, that's a whole other story, but with caribou, I approach them at an angle and I know we've covered this early on in the podcast, is with any prey species, to walk directly toward them. So if I'm out in the wild, I'm in the forest, and there's a herd of caribou, it, if I walk right toward them, it's more threatening. So instead, I take my time, I walk at a 45-degree angle, or even parallel with them for a while, or just chill for a few minutes. And after 15 or 20 minutes, they, a lot like the lizard story, they slowly acclimatize to my presence, and it's, it's also a situation where you know two or three people is okay, but 14 people, that's not going to work. Um, so group size is relevant for a lot of species and their sensitivity. But I approach at an angle, and when they look at me, assuming it's it's not a dangerous species, I look away. Like I don't, I'm not even paying attention to them. I'm going to have a blueberry. I'm going to, I'm just going to have some blueberries, and I look away. I look up at the sky, and they're like, well. Dude, whatever he is, he's not even, he doesn't care about us. He's not looking at us. And so it's a patience game and slowly get closer. And it's worth it because now and then, after a period of time, they become very accepting and you could have many hours of wonderful interaction and observing their behavior, an opportunity to photograph behavior that you wouldn't get if it was rushed, where the animals are just staring at you in concern. So I approach at an angle. And when they stop what they're doing to look at me, I stop moving and I look away. I don't do that with a moose that could, you know, I keep my eyes on animals that could react aggressively. And if I look, I I won't look away. I'll keep them in my peripheral vision, but I'm not staring at them. That's more of a predator prey thing. I don't stare at them when I'm trying to get them to calm down. So I'll... My last answer was way too long, so I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) But I think those are all good points.
2: You know, the behavior cues of when they're relaxed, too. So what Mark was just talking about, approaching at the angle, if they're looking at you, they're still wondering exactly what your intentions are. When, you know, if you look off, have a blueberry, have a drink of water, you know, kind of play with the grass, whatever, when they go back to feeding, that's one cue that they've kind of accepted your presence there. It's feeding the the act of putting their head down and, and feeding their paying attention to something else shows that they're relaxed. Uh, when they do that, after you've approached them, you know you, you know, I wouldn't say you could do whatever you want to do, but you know they're relaxed to the point you can probably start capturing some images. So that's one cue that I look at if they're willing to go to water, which is probably, you know, besides being bedded and sleeping, the most vulnerable thing, because their, their head is down at the water. They can't hear anything around them because the, you know, if it's moving water, it, that is a very vulnerable position. So if they're relaxed enough to go to drink at a stream, you're probably in good shape to get some images as well. So those are a couple of the things that i I look forward just to know when I can start being a little bit more free with my movement. Otherwise, you know, moving really slow, like Mark said, um, even if you're in a blind, make your movement slow because they're going to, if you twitch, they're going to pick that up. And if you surprise them like that, you know, you're in a blind environment, all of a sudden you twitch, they catch that movement and they're surprised by it, they're gone. So, and the, and the last thing that we want to do is, is disturb them to the point where they're changing their routine. So those are just a couple of the cues to kind of piggyback on, on what these guys were just saying.
3: Just to add to what everybody else has already said, um, there's a reason that we have you know, big zoom lenses or big primes. You know, we don't need to be more than – in most cases, you can get very good images if you're 30 to 40 yards away from an animal. There's situations where they get closer and you might be able to get some images that way as well. But it really does just come down to respect in their space and watching their body language. And I think there are some commonalities between a lot of species. Like for example, ears back, you know, any animal I've ever seen with their ears back, they're generally not very happy. Um, Eyes, watch their eyes, you know, bison, their eyes tell you a ton. You know, you look at a bison and then they get mad. If you're, you gotta watch, you gotta see this on video guys. So you got to watch the YouTube to see this, but when they, Jason's when a bison, demonstrate. When a bison <laughs> gets mad, you know, their eyes get real big and they, you know, they kind of, you can see the whites see and stuff. See the whites. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's frightening. So yeah, it is <laughs> for me. Right. <laughs> but, you, the but, you know, you guys all hit on it. It's really don't do it if you're not familiar with their behaviors. And I've unfortunately had to learn the hard way a couple of times with elk, for example, you know. And the other thing I'd say is, remember, they're wild animals. You know, just when you think you have not figured out, they'll throw a curve at you. So the biggest advice I would have is just respect that space. Keep the distance. You know, if you're with, uh, you know, predators, I think it's smart to shoot in groups. For example, bears. I think you're smart to shoot with two or three people. You know, I don't think it's wise to be out there in the wide open with a grizzly bear alone. I think you're opening yourself up for a potential situation that's not good for you or the bear. So, anyways, that's just some of the things that came to mind that I wanted to add to what everybody else has already said.
1: When we work in grizzly country, whether we're hiking with caribou or looking for moose, we try to have a group of four. And I've heard that, and I, I don't, there's no statistics I'm aware of to back it up, but just through the ages that, you know, grizzlies seem to respect when you, they see four, it's just, they go, I mean, for the most part, they go their own way anyway. Yeah. But, when we when we go out on on a day hike like that and, and are in grizzly country where we know there are quite a few bears,
3: you know, I try to have four people, me you know, just, well, and just in par- psychologically. Like a, yeah, no, I okay. think that's a really good point, Mark. Um, and in parks, right, it's probably not as big a deal because people, those bears are used to seeing people. But when you are in the wilderness and in the backcountry, there's a real possibility you could come across a bear that's never seen a person or been close enough to a person, and let's just be real, we are meat, <laughs> and most most of the time they're not going to want to be around you. They're going to run. They're going to whatever. But if you get in a situation where bears hungry enough or whatever, and you're alone, you know you may look like a, a prey opportunity for them. And like I said, that's super rare. I get it, but again, it happens. People do get attacked, and I think most of the time it's the people being dumb in most situations, or it's an accidental situation a lot um, that causes that. But anyways. And, and when you're in bear country and elk country, I actually carry bear spray on me. And I don't 100%. know if it'll work on an elk or not, but if I ever have to try, I'll let you guys know if it works, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know why it wouldn't, but yeah.
1: Well, and, and just keep in mind for the overzealous photographers out there, and I know it's very few, it's just a photograph, right? So it's never worth the risk for a photograph. And in grizzly country, you know, not just a group of four, but if we're going through Heavy cover. We make a, enough noise that anything within a hundred yards, or given their sensitive hearing and nose, lot, a mile away, they're going to know we're coming. So that it's not a startle situation. But that's yes, that's it. You do have to be careful. If there's a kill or something, I mean, yeah, and you walk up on it, grizzly's going to misinterpret that. And I, thankfully, I don't know why. I'm going to go off on a, a very short ah, little rabbit hole here. I don't know why more animals don't eat people. There are lots of us on this planet. but I, <laughs> And it would I be guess. pretty easy.
3: Yeah, 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 right? If they had, if figured it out,
1: yeah. <laughs> no defenses really compared, but it's just, you know, our bony structure. I don't know what it is. So it is a rarity, but it's, it's important to have common sense in wilderness. And I think that's one of the things I, I thrive on is just enjoying that challenge of being smart in the wild whether it's the wilderness and the elements or the animal interaction. But keep in mind, if it's about photography, we're out there to have a good time and there'll be lots of photos on other trips. If one doesn't pan out, it's never worth pushing it to the point of danger.
2: Yeah. And I'll just throw out one quick caution (laughs) for bears specifically. You know, I would rather, I would rather be photographing a thousand pound boar than a, three or four year old adolescent male because they're just curious about everything. And they really don't care. It's kind of like the, you know, 18 year old boy, they're going to take on the world or at least figure the whole world out right now. And so definitely use some additional caution. If if you're around an ad adolescent bear and you'll know, I mean, they look like a gangly kid, but they're very, very curious and very unpredictable. Just don't know what they're gonna do.
3: Yeah, that was that was a good question, Dan. Thank you.
2: That was a good question, Dan. Appreciate it.
3: Matter of fact, we may need to make a show out of it. at some other point, and we can get into specific, you know, species. Like Mark said, pick twelve species, and yeah, it, get into it. It,
2: it honestly could be its own series. Just behavior of each each critter, because there is just that much variance between species.
1: Yeah, this has been a fun episode. Mr. Ron Hayes had these listener questions recorded, and we didn't know what they were out of the gate. So for the other three of us, it's been a surprise and fun interaction. We appreciate those questions coming in. Look forward to more of these podcasts in the future. You can see more of our work on Instagram, on Facebook, on our ever-growing website presence at wildandexposed.com. A quick reminder about our store, where the great merch is. We've tested it, we've ordered it, we love it, and we appreciate your support. If you decide to order some of the gear, send us a picture on social media, on Instagram. We love seeing that. We love reposting it in our stories. You can also find a new and developing page on the website, the What's Up page, where there are lots of links to our content, as well as other pertinent things that we find on the web that we think you might be interested in. So check that out. Our audio podcasts come out every Tuesday and our video podcasts or vlogs, and we encourage you to watch those come out on YouTube on Fridays. Please give us, take the time to give us a positive review, a thumbs up, five-star rating as those help us to gain traction in this busy world of podcasting and vlogging and help support our efforts until next time you've been listening to wild and exposed podcast thanks for tuning in we got our
3: windows down driving down the 405 to make
4: it someday nothing's gonna get in
3: our way we will be the biggest band in time